Welcome to another exciting episode of Pulp Today. Pause while I take a drink. I've been remastering these for uh, iTunes for um, actual audio-only podcasts, and oh boy, does my mouth make a lot of noise like that one right there. And the whole element of me drinking is kind of kind of lost on the listener, but hey, sorry, that's how I wanted to do these. I've gone all over the, you know, the field of literature and pulp for this series, but today is definitely real solid pulp. We're going to talk about space opera, the origins of space opera, and uh, a truly influential space opera. So imagine it's 1978. You loved Star Wars. I think I was 13 in 1978. You've seen every episode of Star Trek a hundred times. You, uh, I went to see Star Wars in movie theaters ten times. You read the James Blish adaptations of the Star Trek episodes. I think at that time there were maybe two original Star Trek novels. There was a time when a human being could have read every Star Trek novel. Can you imagine that? So you're out of Star Wars. You're kind of out of Star Trek. Read all the Bradbury you could get your hands on. And you really wanted something like Star Wars. And I honestly don't remember where I heard about E.E. E. Doc Smith and the Lensman series. But, oh, brother, did that deliver the space opera. Pretty sure I had already read my way through the John Carter Warlord of Mars stories. And those are, I love the term that I've only recently heard for those, which is planetary romance. Those are planetary romances. They are science fiction. They are adventure. They have fantasy elements. But they take place largely on a single planet. There are flying machines, but there aren't starships and galactic empires and federations of good guys and all that kind of stuff. The Lensman series is a huge influence on things that come later. Uh, Star Wars and Star Trek and Dune and Asimov's Foundation. It was really the first giant cosmic epic that I can think of. And... uh, In a sort of George Lucas-like twist, the first novel I read in the series, Galactic Patrol, was the third novel in the series. I don't know why I started with Galactic Patrol. I am always a start-at-the-beginning kind of a guy, so I, I don't know why I dove into Galactic Patrol, but by sheer whatever, I did. It's a great, exciting adventure story. It's preceded by two other novels, triplanetary and first lensman but the george lucas like thing here is that triplanetary wasn't originally intended to connect to galactic patrol and the lensman series it was actually supposed to be the first galactic patrol was supposed to be the first book in the series and it was followed by three four others and then at a certain point ee doc smith the author went back and rewrote triplanetary to fit in the same universe, and then added a middle, his own Phantom Menace, something called First Lensman, to connect the two together, the two halves of his own series. But the Lensman series, another thing it's a huge influence on, and you'll hear it when I describe it, uh, is the the Green Lantern uh, character and universe in uh, in in DC Comics. 
so it's about in the in the far future there's a war between civilization and i mean and they literally call themselves civilization it's not it's not uh <laughs> it it's not subtle doc smith wanted to do a cops and robbers in space story but what he ended up creating was this billion year spanning history of the universe in which these telepathic superior intellects called the Eresians were at war with invaders from another universe called the Adorians. Yeah, for the control of everything ever. And the Eresians, in a very classic 1930s, hey, eugenics isn't so bad twist, uh, breed people, control human history and history on three or four other planets to breed the most heroic, the best people to def to help them defeat the Adorians. And they develop a device called the Lens, which is sort of a cross between Green Lantern's power ring and, a, and, and a, an iPhone watch, which you wear on your wrist. It can only be worn by one person. It will kill anyone who, who wear it, tries to wear it. And the Lensmen themselves are sort of Jedi Knights. They are the cops of the galaxy and they have mind powers and all that kind of thing. And the, the series literally is about the, uh, the war between these two vast cosmic forces. I would even say it's, a, it's an influence on Kirby's fourth world stuff. It can't be underestimated what a huge influence this thing is. And no one, it's not really a thing that's remembered in pop culture and the only adaptations of it have been a couple of Japanese anime projects and some manga, and that's about it. And you you want to wonder why. Well, one, they are incredibly readable and enjoyable books, but I would not say the writing is great. Uh, the characters are delightfully paper-thin. The series was a huge influence on Robert Heinlein, and I, I, I think one of the many ways it was an influence on Heinlein is the not very... Uh, deep characters that are in it and i'll prepare for the hate mail from the heinlein fans but again they're i mean they're less they're less psychologically complex than edgar rice burroughs so if that gives you a a line to, a line to to draw uh but i'll read you some of galactic patrol in which our hero young kimball kinnison who will one day become the gray lensman and give birth to the second stage lensman. This is just some crazy, over-the-top, appalling space violence written in a very 1930s adventure novel style. Chapter 3, In the Lifeboats. Now, he calls Chapter 3 In the Lifeboats, which is a bit of a... They don't get in the lifeboats till the end of the chapter, so it's kind of like, oh, we're, we're getting in lifeboats at some point. Anyway. The missile struck. And in the instant of its striking, the coldly brilliant stars were blotted from sight in a vast globe of intolerable flame. The pirate shield had failed, and under the cataclysmic force of that horrific detonation, the entire nose section of the enemy vessel had flashed into incandescent vapor, and had it added itself to the rapidly expanding cloud of fire. As it expanded, the cloud cooled. Its fierce glare subsided to a rosy glow, through which the stars again began to shine. It faded, cooled, darkened, revealing the crippled hulk of the pirate ship. She was still fighting, but ineffectually, now that all her heavy forward batteries were gone. Needlers, fire at will, barked Kinnison, and even that feeble resistance was ended. 
keen-eyed needle ray men working at spy ray visiplates bored hole after hole into the captive, seeking out and destroying the control panels of the remaining beams and screens. Pull her up, came the next order. The two ships of space flashed together, the yawning, blasted open fore-end of the raider solidly against the Britannia's armored side. A great port opened. Now, bus, it's all yours. Classification to six places, straight A's. They're human or approximately so. Board and storm. Back of that port there had been massed a hundred fighting men, dressed in full panoply of space armor, armed with the deadliest weapons known to the science of the age and powered by the gigantic accumulators of their ship. At their head was Sergeant Van Buskirk, six and a half feet of Dutch Valerian dynamite, who had fallen out of Valeria's cadet corps only because of an innate inability to master the intricacies of higher mathematics. Now the attackers swept forward in a black and silver wave. Four squatly massive semi-portable projectors crashed down upon their magnetic clamps, and in the fierce ardor of their beams, the thick bulkhead before them ran the gamut of the spectrum and puffed outward. Some score of defenders were revealed, likewise clad in armor, and battle again was joined. Explosive and solid bullets detonated against and ricocheted from that highly efficient armor. The beams of a delameter hand projector splashed in the torrents of mad-made lightning off its protective fields of force. But that skirmish was soon over. The semi-portables, whose vast energies no ordinary personal armor could withstand, were brought up and clamped down, and in their holocaust of vibratory destruction, all life vanished from the pirate's compartment. One more bulkhead and we're in their control room, Van Busker cried. Beam it down. But when the beamers pressed their switches, nothing happened. The pirates had managed to jury-rig a screen generator, and with it had cut the power beams behind the invading forces. Also, they had cut loopholes in the bulkhead, through which a frantic ha in frantic haste they were trying to bring heavy projectors of their own into alignment. Bring up the feral paste, the sergeant commanded. Get up as close to that wall as you can so they can't blast us. The paste, successor to thermite, was brought up and the giant Dutchman troweled it on in furious swings from floor up and around in huge arc and back down to the floor. He fired it, and simultaneously some of the enemy gunners managed to angle a projector sharply enough to reach the further ranks of the patrolmen. Then, mingled with the flashing, scintillating, gassy glare of the thermite and the raving energy of the pirate's beam to make of that confined space a veritable inferno. But the paste had done its work, and as the semicircle of wall fell out, the soldiers of the lens leaped through the hole in the still-glowing wall to struggle hand-to-hand -hand against the pirates, now making a desperate last stand. The semi-portables and other heavy ordnance powered from the Britannia were, of course, useless. Pistols were ineffective against the pirate's armor of hard alloy. Hand rays were equally impotent against its defensive shields. Now heavy hand grenades began to rain down among the combatants, blowing patrolmen and pirates alike to bits, for the outlaw chiefs cared nothing that they killed many of their own men if in doing so they could take toll of the law. And worse, a crew of gunners was swiveling a mighty projector around it upon its hastily improvised mount to cover that sector of the compartment in which the policemen were most densely massed. But the minions of the law had one remaining weapon, carried expressly for this eventuality, the space axe, a combination and sublimation of battle axe, mace, bludgeon, and lumberman's picaroon, a massively needle-pointed implement of potentialities limited only by the physical strength and bodily agility of its wielder. 
Now all the men of the Britannia's storming party were Valerians, and therefore were big, hard, fast, and agile. And of them their leader was the biggest, hardest, fastest, and most agile. When the space-tempered apex of that thirty-pound monstrosity, driven by the four hundred-odd pounds of rawhide and whalebone that was his body, struck pirate armor, that armor gave way. Nor did it matter whether or not that hellish beak of steel struck a vital part after crashing through the armor. Head or body, leg or arm, the net result was the same. A man does not fight effectively when he is breathing space in lieu of atmosphere. <laughs> the whole book is like that. The hyperbole and the violence and even a, a bit of gore. And as the series goes forward, the stakes get even higher. At one point, the uh, opposing forces are literally throwing planets at one another, harnessing the... Uh, rays of the sun into a giant laser i believe called the sun ray something that i think does show up in kirby's fourth world it's insane stuff but if you want to absolutely get away from it all and take a take a, a trip to the origins of space opera in the 1930s i think the uh, galactic patrols from 37 uh, i recommend them highly as just sheer entertainments doc smith was sort of an interesting guy he was a uh, an engineer and a chemist, but he was specifically, interestingly, a food chemist. He mostly worked in the chemistry of donuts, believe it or not, and wrote these just crazy, violent, epic space war novels and gave birth to an entire genre that is now intensely popular. I, I sometimes wonder what Doc Smith would, would make of the Mandalorian and the Clone Wars and the, the many... Uh, the many children that he spawned. That's it for today. Clear ether. Oh yeah, it, in 1938, we had moved past the idea that space was a material, was filled with something, but uh, there's sort of a uh, an asterisk in uh, Einstein's relativity where he where he refers to gravitational fields as ether. There was this whole concept that space was space had to be full of something, so it was full of ether. It's a very complicated thing to talk about how modern physicists now, it, there is something there, but it, it's, 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 it's not ether. I don't know if they're calling it dark matter these days. Mm. But anyway, clear ether, uh, jets on full, needle beams aimed, watch your spy rays, and uh, have a great day. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.